Hey guys, welcome to episode 116 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We are so happy to be bringing you another episode of True Crime on what is our 10-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Yes, happy anniversary. I can't, well, not obviously 10 years of us being married. That's only been two, but we started dating 10 years ago today. It's pretty crazy. Yes. I like how, though, we always go back and forth with the date sometimes. Well, technically, we went out on a date on the 21st, but it was after midnight when you asked me to be your girlfriend, but I didn't want our anniversary to be on the anniversary of the JFK assassination. I mean... That's I, the history teacher you know in me. Yeah, it is. And it's a good call. A good I just think call. it was bad juju that day, so I just did not want to <laughs> pick that date. So the 21st is where it is. Officially. Yes. So as always, at the end of this episode, we're going to thank our new Patreon subscribers. And I just wanted to send a message out about Patreon. We did open up more $1 to $2 spots. So if that was what you were looking to donate, you can head on over to our Patreon page and get some bonus episodes and some ad-free episodes. But those of you that are donating $5 or above, you're still getting those two episodes a month in addition to the two we regularly release. So that's it for my Patreon spiel. That's all I have. That's it? I don't think there's anything else to talk about. No, that's it. I'm always really bad at, like, doing things at the top of the show, but I just really always want to get into it. So I know. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Today's episode brings us back to 1984 in Orinda, California. Now, the 80s were known as the Decade of Decadence, and nowhere was that more prevalent than in the San Francisco Bay Area. Orinda was like the preppy, eyes-odd, color-popped, big-hair capital of the United States. Most of the mothers were homemakers, and the fathers worked in San Francisco as executives or CEOs. Anyone who was anyone was a member of the country club, and those who were not were trying to buy their way in. Orinda was the place to be in the Bay Area in the 1980s. If you had a family and wanted that little slice of the suburbs that people who work in the cities always do. And it's really the same thing today. But if you want to live in Orinda, you have to pay the price. So back in the 1980s, the prices of homes were approaching $1 million. And today, They're over $3 million if you want to touch any real estate on the street where this crime today took place. Well, I got news for you. Whether it be back in 1980 (laughs) or now, we could not live there. No, we could not. But that's okay. I'm sure it's very nice there. I feel, though, in the state of New Jersey, we're probably approaching the same taxes they pay. (laughs) That's probably similar. (laughs) I mean, it's it's very well possible. So... Again, if you're paying those prices, you expect something in return, like safety and good schools. And Orinda really did deliver. The school district is known for its academic excellence and is ranked first in the state of California and has a graduation rate of 99 to 100% each year. And in 1984, the crime rate was one of the lowest in the state of California, Which is why, when a teenage girl is murdered on the front lawn of her neighbor's house, the community was never the same. 
Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On June 23, 1984, Arthur Hillman was relaxing at his home on Orchard Street when he heard screams coming from the front of his house. He got up from the spot in the living room where he was sitting and looked out his front window. He saw a young girl on his lawn. He knew her. Her name was Kirsten Costas, and she lived across the street. It took a second to register, but Hillman realized quickly that the teenager was badly injured. He ran out to help her, and she was bleeding from multiple locations. He tried to stop the bleeding and was yelling, crying out for help. As he was telling his son to call 911, he noticed a Volvo driving away that had been parked right in front of his house. It had left in an awful hurry. Hillman made note of this because he wanted to tell the police when they arrived because his immediate thought process was that the person in that car was involved with Kirsten being hurt. First responders and police were on the scene within minutes. As paramedics worked to control the bleeding, before she was placed in the ambulance, her parents arrived at the scene. When they pulled up, they had no clue that the lights and the police were there for their daughter. They had thought she was out that day. When they found out, they panicked and got into the ambulance with her. Kirsten Costas was the popular girl in the sophomore class at Miramon High School. She was on the varsity swim and cheer team and had many friends. The Costas family was very wealthy. Her mother, Barrett, was a stay-at-home mother who worked occasionally part-time at the local community center. And it was more like something for her to do every now and then while her children were in school than out of necessity for the family. Kirsten's father's name was Arthur, but he was known as Art. He was an executive for the 3M Paper Company in San Francisco. And it was on his salary that his family, which consisted of himself, his wife, Kirsten, and her brother Peter, lived very comfortably in Orinda. Living in Orinda was a constant competition, and it seemed like everyone was trying to keep up with the Costas and not the Joneses. In this town where everyone was privileged, your social status became tied to your identity. You had to have the newest things, be upstanding members of the country club, look the part, and your children had to be popular. And the Costas, well, they had all of the above, and they made it look really easy. At the end of her sophomore year, Kirsten was on top of her teenage world. She had a lot of friends, was popular, wealthy. She had just made the varsity cheer squad, and she had received an invitation to the exclusive and prestigious Bobo Links Club. That's pretty cool. But what's that? Yeah, I was like... <laughs> I saw the way you were looking at me, but I, I have no idea what that is. I was waiting for your reaction. It's kind of more of a local thing, but it's a... It's kind of like 
a community outreach club where you're going to volunteer to do things for the community. But really, at the end of the day, this service charitable club kind of morphed over time into being like a fraternity or sorority of sorts, where you have to be asked to be a member. And really, the only people that were members were the most popular and wealthiest of the high school. Okay. So they pretty much just, over time, it became a created club, pretty much. Well, it became a popularity contest. Yeah. Okay. It had good intentions in the beginning, and then it became, you know, just the really rich, pretty kids. Gotcha. And um, these people were known as the Bobbies in the high school. So the Bobbies were kind of the ones that ruled the roost. Okay. So members were recruited based on their social status and the wealth of their families. So if you were a Bobby, you were the epitome of cool. And to a teenager, that means the world, especially in a school where everything is really competitive. So you kind of need it to be in that club to maintain your social status. And usually you get brought in your sophomore year so like you participate really your junior and senior year and kirsten had been asked to be a member as were other members of her closest friends so it was just you know really exciting now it is kind of like a fraternity or sorority so there is some hazing that comes with getting initiated into the bobbies and you know Kirsten and her friends really didn't mind that aspect at all because they would do whatever it took to be popular because that's the kind of track they were already on. I see what you're saying. You know, it's it's interesting because they pretty much created a, another level of a, of the social ladder. Yes. A, amongst the children of the parents. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's kind of like, well, our parents have this country club they belong to, but not everyone can belong to it because it was pretty prestigious. So let's do the same thing at the high school level. I feel like this is going to cause issues amongst the children, but it could affect parents, I guess, if the parents care enough about their children. Well, you want your child to be a member of the Bobbies because if they weren't, that meant they weren't popular and that adds to the social status of your family. Too much for me to handle. I'll just stay right here and, you know, hang out with the neighborhood people. (laughs) Well, it's kind of like the movie Heathers, but real life. Heathers? I don't remember that movie. No, you didn't see. Everyone out there who has seen Heathers is like, yes, okay, that makes total sense. I will take your word for it. You have to watch. It's a phenomenal movie. John refuses to watch movies from like the 80s with me, but that's my time. That is untrue, but. It takes a heavy convincing. All right, that is more accurate. <laughs> Unless it's an action movie, then he'll do it. Yeah, and, and some of those action movies are pretty bad in the 80s, but you know what? Whatever. I'll I'll do it. We'll but watch everything's Heathers. so bad, it's good. You'll love Heathers. Right. Christian Slater, so good. I'll do it. We'll do it. Okay. So, just an example of what the hazing was like. It was nothing too crazy, but, you know, minor humiliation involved. About... One week into their summer vacation, because this is when the hazing is going to start the summer between their sophomore and junior year, Kirsten and her friends, who are Ashley Mayfield, Lauren Shea, and Bernadette Prady, are going to head to the home of one of the older Bobby girls. And the recruits were asked to bring some of their mother's oldest and ugliest clothes with them. 
The girls were asked to rub egg yolk and mayonnaise into their hair and put on the clothes. Then they were ordered to go to the nearest busy intersection and try and sell kisses for a dime. So it's not the hazing we know of today or the kind that they may see in college a few years later, but it was just self-deprecating enough to mess with teenage girls. Yeah, I don't know if I would want to take a, take part of that. Yeah. I don't know. It's a little weird. But no one was going to say no because the Bobbies ran the school. And again, you want to be part of that crowd. So kind of anything that the Bobbies said to do during this recruitment time was always said yes to. And that's important to know moving forward with the crime that's going to take place. Okay. So about a week later... A call came to Kirsten's house. Her mother was the one to answer the phone. And on the other end was a teenage girl. She told Barrett that Kirsten had done it. She was going to be initiated into the Bobo Links Club. And it was going to happen that Saturday during a special dinner. Barrett wrote down the message, but she was instructed by the girl to not tell Kirsten that this was an initiation dinner. That part was going to be a surprise, but it was important that Barrett told Kirsten that she needed to go out on Saturday and go in the car that was going to be there to pick her up. Okay. And I'm sure they said, yeah. Well, yes, of course. She's going to be excited (laughs) and tell her daughter, um, somebody from the Bobbies called. She doesn't tell her that it's supposed to be this initiation dinner, but she said someone from the Bobbies called. They're going to come pick you up on Saturday, and they said it's important that you go. So that was kind of the message that was given to Kirsten. So that leads us to June 23rd, 1984. The Saturday that Kirsten was supposed to be going to this initiation dinner, and the same day that she was attacked. When Kirsten Costas and her parents got to the hospital, things took a turn for the worst. She had been stabbed in vital organs and had lost too much blood. Her injuries were inoperable. And her parents were by her side in the hospital as she passed away. She was exactly one month shy of her 16th birthday. That's really sad. So this day that was supposed to be so exciting turned into a complete tragedy. And her parents had trusted her to go with these people because it was supposed to be this prestigious community group. Also, I want to add, personally, I do not care about this, but I'm sure by having this crime take place and having your daughter die, right, this must put the worst, um, I don't don't know what the right word is, but everyone's going to know what happened to this family's daughter and for such a, for a town that has such, um, like your social status is, is so is held to such a high regard. This probably is bad for them because now you have all these, you're going to have like the news around you, police. It's like in this very rich town. I don't know. Maybe I'm not explaining it correctly, but no, I know what you're saying. There's now going to be this kind of stigma around the town of Arenda. It's definitely not what they're known for in the public. So the fact that, Things never happen like this in Orinda. It's going to kind of make it such a bigger deal that this crime is going to take place. Yeah, like at the end of the day, we're talking about a, a, a daughter who just died 
but I'm just trying to say that those other people probably don't care. Like I, I, who you know, you don't know, right? That people aren't thinking, oh, we feel really bad for the Costas family. They're thinking, oh, this is going to be a black mark on Arinda. Exactly, you said okay. it best. That's why we have you around. I'm a John interpreter. Sometimes I do. <laughs> yes, you are, because I do not speak the way you do. So the detective at the scene knew nothing about what was unfolding at the hospital. So as the detective's kind of getting this statement from the neighbor Hillman. He has no idea that Kirsten has passed away, but he is trying to get statements to figure this all out. And of course, their first priority is to question Arthur Hillman, um, the man who whose front lawn Kirsten was stabbed on. And Hillman stood in his front yard where he had just been trying to save the life of his neighbor. And he explained to the detective that he had heard a scream. And that's why he had looked out his window. He saw Kirsten and he went outside to help her. And then he said to the detectives that he had seen a Volvo rush from the scene. And he was kind of explaining what the Volvo looked like to the detective. And all of a sudden, the car pulled back up in front of his house. What are the chances of that? Okay. Yes. But before we get into who this person in the Volvo is going to be. We're just going to take a quick break to talk about our first sponsor of the show. So a man got out of the car and introduced himself to Arthur Hillman and the detectives. He seemed shocked that the police were there and seemed to kind of just be taking everything in. The man said his name was Alex Arnold. He lived in the next town over And he had been at home when he received a knock on his door. When he answered, he found Kirsten Costas at his doorstep. She had explained to him that she had been out with a friend, but things had gotten weird. So she was wondering if she could use his phone to call her parents. Arnold let her in and told her that she could use his phone. Kirsten tried to call her home, but no one answered. Her parents had gone out. She told Arnold that her parents weren't picking up. He said that he felt very bad for her, and because she seemed so distressed, he offered to give her a ride back to her house in his Volvo. Kirsten agreed and thanked him for doing that. When they pulled out of the driveway, Arnold said that he noticed a car begin to follow them. He noted that the car was pale yellow or cream, It was a Ford Pinto, and it was kind of beat up looking. Arnold asked Kirsten if she knew why the Pinto was following them, and she told him that he didn't need to worry about it. Why is it always a Pinto? It is always a Pinto. It's always a Pinto. It's either a Gremlin or a Pinto in the 70s and 80s. I don't know why. Well, they were kind of like inexpensive, I guess, right? That's probably why there were so many of them sold. You're probably right, but I just find it, I find it hilarious. Wasn't there a problem with the Pintos where they would like ignite, like if the bumper? I'm not sure if it was the Pinto or the Gremlin. One of them, yeah, that's what would happen. I think it was the Pinto that if it got like rear-ended, it might, it was kind of like a match. Yeah, (laughs) it it wouldn't take much impact to like burst the gas tank and the thing would just go up in flames. Good, safe. Yeah, you know, we've evolved a lot, you know, towards automotive (laughs) safety. 
So I think this is just kind of, and you have to understand, as Arnold is telling this story, the detectives and even Arthur Hillman was kind of like, what, dude? Like, this story is just so unbelievable as they're listening to it. And you can imagine that the detectives hearing this are kind of like, well, you're either an eyewitness or a suspect, but it's so unbelievable that you're leaning more towards being a suspect at this point. Yeah. I almost feel like this is, um, I don't want to say a setup, but like they trying to, whoever's involved in this, it seems like it's taking this weird turn where, where the story's coming into place. There's the car that's following them. I also wanted to put a red flag in the, of the whole thing with the, the neighbor. I don't think the neighbor did it, but what I mean by that is it's kind of odd that the person, the, you know, this woman's on his lawn. He hears a scream, he comes out, and she's fatally wounded in multiple, you know, like, it's a lot of damage to happen so quickly, and then he just gets up and runs out and tends to her wounds, which would tell me that this person would have had to, like, let's say this, let's say the person in the Volvo let her out, right? That means that that car must have stopped right behind, jumped out, stabbed her, stabbed her a bunch of times and, and like, within two, like a minute, run back into the car and leave, and then that's when the you know the neighbor hears a scream that's pretty quick like well, that whole thing to take place is very fast isn't it well actually what you just said is exactly what alex arnold says happens really yes so okay when kirsten told arnold to stop because he was in front of her house the pinto was still behind them and stops behind them kirsten tells arnold her parents were not home and she could tell this because their car was not in the driveway. So she thanked Arnold for driving her home and told him that she was going to be heading over a neighbor's house until her parents got home, which is why Kirsten was walking on the lawn of her neighbor's house and not her own house. Okay. And by the way, that's actually weird that I did that because I, I do not yeah, know this story. That was very interesting. Okay. Detective John. It's me on the <laughs> case. So Arnold said he watched Kirsten walk towards the house, the neighbor's house, that they were kind of standing in front of right at that moment. And as she was approaching the house, the driver of the Pinto ran out of the car. He said he saw the two girls kind of get into a fight. Kirsten yelled at her kind of get away, get away from me. You're weird. Get away from me. And the two girls got into a fight. The fight was over quickly. And the second girl ran back to the Pinto and drove away and Kirsten kind of crumbled to the ground. He said that that was when he saw Hillman walk out of the house. So he knew that Hillman was going to be helping Kirsten. So he thought the best thing for him to do would be to follow the Pinto and get the girl who had run out of the Pinto. I understand. Okay. I mean, that is, I mean, that's kind of good. I mean, this is 1984, isn't it? Yes. All right. So, I mean, no one has a cell phone where they can like drive, you know, and, and call the police, but at least if you were able to follow and grab a license plate, that would be the, your best course of action, you know, or see who th that was that just, you know, went back into the car. Right. So Arnold explained that he tailed the car for a while, 
but lost it because of heavy traffic in the area. So he decided the best thing for him to do would be to go back to where the hurt girl was so he could help the neighbor with her and kind of be there to talk about the attack. The detective explained to the man that he had not witnessed a fight between two girls. He'd witnessed a stabbing. Like, he thought they got into a fist fight. Okay, but it's still... He still is saying that it was a woman, a, a girl or whatever, who stabbed the other girl. Yes. He said that the description, well, the description he gave of this girl that ran out of the Pinto, he said she was chunky with stringy blonde hair. But that was all that he could see. He couldn't really see her face. Okay. So obviously the detective told him he'd have to come in for questioning the following day. But his story is still really bizarre. They don't even know if this Pinto is real. Yeah, I mean. But it is bizarre for him to come back. That's, I think, the only thing that's kind of like justifying his story is that if he really did do it, he would have just driven away. He came back. So that is true. I'm going to also put a red flag in this. In In Alex Arnold? Correct. Okay. Because I feel like it's too much of a setup. Where I feel like this is like, tr- like they've practiced this light, like the these events to unfold the way they are. Okay. Also, I think that the, if it is, if there was a girl there that stabbed her, then based on the physical features that this uh, this eyewitness said, and the fact that they, uh, uh, he heard her say "you're weird" or whatever, indicates to me that maybe this person wanted to get into this awesome club and couldn't. Okay. Because she's the popular one who runs the thing, and her word would get her in, maybe. And maybe that's why this confrontation happened on the lawn. Okay. That's what I'm going to go with. Okay. And I think that your thought process is very similar to the thought process of detectives at that stage in the investigation. So at around 2 a.m., and of course, after they just experienced their daughter, who would have been 16 very shortly, die in front of them. Kirsten's parents were brought to the police station for questioning regarding what could have happened to their daughter. Barrett told detectives that she had received a phone call earlier in the week explaining that Kirsten had been invited to a dinner. The dinner was supposed to be an initiation into the Bobbies for her daughter. She said that the caller had sounded like a teenage girl. She was told not to tell Kirsten about the event because it was supposed to be a surprise. So the plan was that Barrett was to tell her someone from the Bobbies would be picking her up on Saturday. So she had to be home and go in the car with whoever it was, but she didn't know for what. So it's hard to hear, but her mother basically was an unwilling participant in this plot to lure her out of her own home. That's pretty crazy. It's sad. Yeah. So the police will not know this at the time. But two other girls, I mean, they learned this later on in their investigation, but two other girls' parents were also received the same call, but no one had been there to pick them up on Saturday. Oh, so you mean, okay, so three, two other people got the same message. Correct. But there was only someone there to pick up Kirsten. That's really interesting. So this is like, a, like they're targeting the people, I guess the, the girls of this club. Right. Okay. 
Well, the members of the Bobolinks that were in charge of the initiation process were contacted by police to confirm this detail. You know, was the Saturday dinner a thing? And was Kirsten supposed to be there? They said that no such dinner was planned for the girls and that they were still going through the initiation process that usually only ended right before school was supposed to begin in September. So they basically still had a whole nother month of initiation. Wow. So it was clear that the person who had made these calls had set Kirsten up and was either thinking about the other girls as victims. So like there's two, there's two kind of like thought processes we can go through here. Were all three girls that got called the choice to be victims and they just chose Kirsten? Or were the two other calls distractions so that if like Kirsten's mother ever like told her, oh, hey, there's a dinner that's going to happen and she were to like check with her friends, two other people would say, oh, I got the same call too. I mean, that's a really good way to look at it. I mean, I guess it could go either way, right? Right. Like, is this someone covering their tracks and their main target is Kirsten? Or were there three targets and Kirsten was the easiest of the three? Yeah. So that's now the the thought. Once the police get that information, that's a question they have to answer too. And it seems as this investigation is rolling, there's really more questions than there are answers. So either way, the person that did this knew that using the Bobbies as a lure would work for Kirsten. So that meant that this person had to be familiar with some aspect of her life. And that kind of tied into what their eyewitness, Alex Arnold, had been saying. Arnold, at this point, was seen as a witness and no longer a suspect of any kind. And this was because his story and alibi were easily confirmed by the many people that he had over his house that Saturday, including um, his wife, Mary Jane, was there. So he had basically all of his friends over his house when Kirsten Costas came knocking on his door. Okay, so his alibi completely checks out then. Right, like he's not this predator that really did commit this murder. Because, you know, at first that's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, an adult man giving this teenage girl a ride home. It's a, I mean, it's like you're being a good Samaritan, but you're going to be looked at like that. Well, especially when it goes down, you're a suspect, right? Correct. So, all right, he checks out. Yeah, so Arnold is really just being nice by taking home a girl who was visibly distressed and trying to call her parents who weren't answering their phone. Also, I think it's really funny how we, because I guess we do true crime, it's like no one can just be genuinely nice. No. It's like there could always, there's always alter, like ulterior motives. motives. Yeah. <laughs> Our walls are always up. Yep. So, again, the only thing that Arnold knew, because he was re-interviewed by police, was that the girl that had followed him from his house to Kirsten's and had later attacked her was driving a cream or light yellow colored Ford Pinto and had stringy blonde hair and she was a little overweight. Well, chunky, he said, which is kind of a dick move, but like also stabbing someone's a dick move. So it kind of evens out, I feel. Well, the whole chunky comment, I mean, we can use that. I mean, I, I understand that could be pretty bad, but I mean, if it was his only way of describing what he saw, 
Yeah, I think he was trying to be nice in his description. Yeah, I mean, how it, I especially if there was no facial details that he could give. No. And it was kind of hard to do that. I mean, and then I guess it's okay. Right. And also she stabbed someone, so. I guess it kind of writes the wrong. Yes. Yeah. And I say that as someone who is chunky themselves, so. <laughs> I feel Stop like it. I have, I have a little bit of a lead way there. So really the Pinto was the only true lead that the detectives had when it came to the murder of Kirsten. So they got a list of all of the people that owned either yellow or cream Pintos within a 50-mile radius. And like you said, it's always the Pinto, right? There were so many Pintos in the area. They had a list of over 500 people, and they had to contact all of them. The damn Pinto. I know, pretty crazy. (laughs) Okay. Now, the town was on the edge. And everyone was up in arms. This is a very wealthy area of executives and CEOs who were demanding answers. They were basically demanding answers from law enforcement, like the way they demanded things from the people that work for them. But that's not how investigations work. However, I do see where they're coming from. They pay a lot of money for protection and to live in a nice neighborhood. And a 15-year-old girl was just stabbed in the middle of the broad daylight in front of her neighbor's house. And her killer was still on the loose. So both of those facts, they're pretty terrifying. So I can understand why a community would be demanding answers. Because they basically just want to know, are they in danger themselves? Right. Could this be a string of murders or hits that might be taking place around the neighborhood? I mean, I guess that could be nerve wracking. I know you and I would be like, what the hell? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Are you kidding me? I'd be so scared. You'd be like sleeping with a knife. I pretty much basically do. Yeah. (laughs) It's on my bedside table. I mean, I think you've told our audience that before, but. I have issues. Do you want to tell them what you did when I when I leave sometimes and what you do? I think we did tell them this, that I okay. put knives randomly in different rooms. Just in, in random drawers. Yeah. Where I could like hurt myself <laughs> and by And then we accident. find them later. <laughs> yeah. Or the screwdriver that one time. Oh, yes, yes. Or how there was the, a lack of knives. They were or, in the dishwasher. Or the time you tried to put a, a chair in front of the door that didn't work out too good because then I was locked out at one in the morning. Yeah, that's pretty Coming bad. home from a night shift. But you know yeah. what, though? I'd rather you be safe. I do have issues. I just, it's I'm okay. sorry. You're right. You're right. I did feel safe. I slept well. Yes. Okay. So because they knew that the killer was a teenager themselves, they figured the best way to get to the bottom of what had been going on with Kirsten and who could have wanted to hurt her, they would need to go and talk to all of her classmates at Miramont High School. Um, the best source of information are always going to be the peers of a teenager. So, and really one of them could be her killer. So it was important to kind of question all of the kids at the high school or that went to the high school because it's still the summertime. So over 100 interviews were conducted and they started with those that were closest to Kirsten and then they kind of worked their way out. So by performing these interviews, they learned something interesting something that most true crime documentaries or podcasts don't really like to say. Our victim was not perfect. Kirsten was very popular, and she was not always nice to her peers, the ones that she did not consider at the same social level she was. 
For instance, they learned that she and her friend Ashley made very mean prank calls to kids that they thought were not so cool. And many students had stories of unkindness shown to them by Kirsten and her group of friends. Now listen, this is complicated. Of course, all victims and all stories are not perfect. That's just not realistic because nobody's perfect. And can teenagers be unbelievably cruel at times? Yes, they can. But they're also teenagers. And sometimes they grow up and they realize what they did wasn't right. And they make up for it by doing things, choosing professions that they know they could do good with. Or maybe they raised their kids to be better than they were. But Kirsten was robbed of her life and that opportunity to do so and be better and learn from any mistakes she made when she was a teenager. Because after all, that's all she was. She was a a 15-year-old teenager. So although she wasn't perfect, that opportunity should never have been robbed from her. Absolutely. Uh, well put. I mean, it's just like, look, look at us. We're in our 30s. You know, you, you look back, you're a baby. At, <laughs> at 14, 15 years old, you're a baby. You're still going through all of your, you know, you know, your hormones, you're, you're, you're you know, you're growing up. Like, you make mistakes. You say and do things that you don't mean. And like you said, like, it doesn't mean that, you know, you need to die for it. I also you have to die because of it. I agree with you. Sorry. And I, I also feel like from the description given by other people that Miramont High School is just one big competition. And, you know, sometimes it's sur- that's survival for teenagers, you know, in their world. And that might have been her reaction to it. Yeah. So now the question is, who stole that opportunity from her? Who stole the chance for her to grow up and become an adult? So the thought process of law enforcement at the time was that this was either someone who Kirsten had gotten into an argument with, someone who was jealous, or someone she had been mean to. In some interviews that they gave, the students of the high school said that they thought the person that had killed Kirsten did so because she embodied everything that Orinda stood for. And the person that killed her must have hated Orinda. That's an interesting theory that the the kids have. And I think it shows like their kind of mindset towards the environment that the school has. It also kind of broadens the investigation and who they might be looking at, right? Because it could, is it possible it could be more than just a classmate now? Right. Could it be like another school? Could it, you know what I mean? It could be another school or somewhere. Or someone who graduated. Or someone could, that graduated. Could yeah. be a lot of things. So many of Kirsten's friends and all members of the Bobo Links were given polygraph tests, and they all passed. All of them? All of them. Hmm. They had not done anything, nor did they know anything about it. The next person that the detectives wanted to talk to was a girl that Kirsten went to high school with that was very unlike her. Her name was Nancy Kane, and Kane was very different from the preppy, popular girls of the school. She had a strong desire to be unlike anyone else. She was different, and at Marymount High School in 1984, that meant you were dangerous. 
And this is why her name came up whenever detectives asked the students if there was someone that they thought may have wanted to hurt Kirsten. But before we get into um, Kane and what she might or might not have done, we're going to take a break to talk about our final sponsor of the show. So what is interesting was that Kane and Kirsten actually knew each other for a while. They had met in middle school and she had gone to church and even CCD with Kirsten's good friend Bernadette. In fact, Kirsten, Bernadette, and Kane, Nancy Kane, were really good friends. But once they got into high school, Kane kind of separated herself from the other two girls. And she kind of put forth this image of this kind of like dangerous, druggy girl, which, you know, she says herself. And she just started dressing and acting differently than her other two friends had. You know, she went more in a new wave direction than a preppy direction. So think like Madonna, Flock of Seagulls, that look. Okay. A lot of times um, she inaccurately gets depicted as like being goth, but that wasn't her look at all. That's good clarification though. Yes. So Kane was questioned by police. Um, A notebook of hers had actually been found by school officials where Kane stated that she hated Kirsten and that she wanted to see her blood drip, drip, drip. Ooh. Yeah. So detectives asked Kane what she had been doing the day and night of the murder. She said she had gone to see Ghostbusters with some friends. Like the movie. Great movie. I know. Could you imagine seeing that at the movie theater? That would have been awesome. So they asked her if she wanted to take a lie detector test like all of her other peers did. But this is where her parents step in and say that they don't want her to take one. And she was pretty apprehensive to do so as well. Now, at this point in August of 1984, Kirsten's parents are upset. It has been about two months and there has been no arrests made. They make a statement to the media where they discuss their disappointments with the investigation and they fear that the killer of their daughter was most likely enrolling in classes at Miramont High School. So as you can imagine, that's going to cause so much fear in the community. I mean, not saying that the family didn't have a right to say that, because most likely they were 100% correct, but this causes um, this wave of terror amongst the student population and their families because they're thinking am I sitting next to a killer or like is my child sitting next to a killer in biology class like it was scary I mean that would be uneasy I think for any parent yeah yeah so now on September 4th 1984 the first day of school Nancy Kane was absent which of course is going to start the rumor mill going that she was still a suspect or that she had even been arrested. However, that was not true. Weeks earlier, Kane had been questioned by police again. And during this interview, she confessed that she had not been telling the truth. She had not been at the movies like she originally told them. She only said that because she didn't want her parents to find out that she had been at her boyfriend's house. What 
what a teenage mindset. I'd rather lie to the police about a murder investigation than have my parents be mad at me. You know what? In their head, it makes sense. Yeah. And that goes to show you that sometimes teenagers just can't rationalize what is right. Yeah, that's true. Um, They were able to confirm this alibi with her boyfriend and her boyfriend's family that had been home at the time. So Nancy Kane was taken off of the suspect list. So this is good. They were able to clear another suspect, but also bad because they were back at square one. No possible suspects and even more pressure from the community. They also wanted to solve this for the Costas family. And because the sheriff's department and the Arinda police knew that they needed help, they reached out to the FBI. Good call. Yes. So now the agent at the local office had an idea. There was something new going on at the FBI. He had heard of a branch of the Bureau that had helped solve crimes where local law enforcement just really had no answers. The Behavioral Science Unit. Wheels up in 30. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And this is very like Mindhunter, like the beginning of it when they're you like they're solving these crimes initially and they're kind of trying to gain some traction within the FBI. Yeah. So it took the team at the FBI about three months to make a psychological profile of their killer. The 14-page report stated that the weapon used was very important. Kirsten had been stabbed, and the use of a knife showed a lot of anger. Within the report, it stated that the killer came from a large upper-middle-class family, six kids, they thought, and that they were Catholic. I always think it's funny because you're just like, how the heck did they get there? But that's why they're the professionals. That is true. Now, you know, they must hit on so many little things. And it's just like all these little breadcrumbs that just come together to, to like, come up with a report like that. You know, it's 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 so interesting that you can gather all those things just by kind of combing through what you already know. Yes, it is really interesting. and, And it is. You know, well, that's why there's so many shows about it. You know, we have our criminal minds, Mine Hunter. They're all so good. I think it's interesting to see that there are breadcrumbs that are left by killers, and that's kind of what they find, but also that this could have been predicted by earlier behavior. So it kind of leads us to know that, like, okay, maybe we could stop these things from happening before they start. You're probably right. Well, that's the hope anyway. Yeah. So the next step is putting the profile to use. It is said in the profile that the killer also knew the victim. So detectives looked through all of the friends of Kirsten that matched the profile. There was one name that stuck out to them. Bernadette Prati. The friend that had been on the swim team with Kirsten and had been friends with Nancy Kane at one point. She fit everything in the profile. She came from a very Catholic family. She had many siblings. And she also matched the physical description that Arnold had given. See, so now this is, we're getting somewhere here, I think. Yes, everything's kind of falling into place here. So they were unsure about bringing her in again, though, because they really never suspected her at all. She had been mild-mannered and calm during interviews, where she told them that she had been babysitting during the time of the murder. 
she passed a polygraph test and she showed the appropriate responses at the funeral where she had been seen with the rest of the girls that were a part of the Bobbies. Another reason they never suspected her was because Prati was the same age as Kirsten, which meant she didn't have her driver's license, so she couldn't have been driving a car. And even though all these things were true, they wanted to trust the profile. It was supposed to help them find the killer. So they decide to visit her house just under the guise of talking to the family just to see one more time, you know, could this have been her? So when they go to the house, they kind of do like this walk through and guess what's found in the garage? Oh, oh no. I'm guessing the murder weapon. No, a yellow Pinto. Oh, where was I going with that? Well, garage, I know. It could have been there. It could have been there. It could have been there. Okay, but Pinto. they find the Pinto. Well, a yellow Pinto, and it was beat up. So after this, they decide, let's check on that babysitting alibi. Now, they had never followed through with the babysitting alibi because she had passed a polygraph test. Which probably would have been a good idea to follow through, but it also would have been really difficult to check 100 alibis. So I do understand why they didn't. When they called the family that she said she had been babysitting for, they told detectives that Bernadette hadn't worked for them for over a year. I think we have our woman here. Okay. So she was called in for another interview, her fifth. But this time she was not being questioned by the detectives that had interviewed her four other times and had never suspected her. She was going to be questioned by the FBI, something that is definitely intimidating for a 15-year-old girl. Really anybody, but you would assume a 15-year-old girl. When they start to question her, she had the same demeanor she had in the other interviews. She was very calm. To rattle her, she's shown the profile. The FBI tells her that she meets every section of this profile. And she asked the FBI agent, do you think I did it? And they told her that they did think she did it. But she doesn't back down. She's very adamant and she says, I didn't do it. And really, they have nothing to hold her on. They do have the Pinto. And the reason why the Pinto wasn't initially connected with her family was because her sister, who has a different last name than she does, um, because she was married, used the car, has the car registered in her name. So it wasn't like on the list of Pintos in the area, Prodi was there. Okay. The sisters is registered with the car. So it's really the sister's car. I am surprised in her demeanor though. Like yeah. the way that she's kind of being, I don't want to say defiant, but, but just, there's just like a way about her and this weird calmness to her. To ask the FBI, so do you think I did it? It's almost like a, a game of cat and mouse where she's playing with yeah. an FBI agent. It's kind of weird. Yeah, like as a teenager, I don't think I would do that. I think if the FBI had me in a room, I would be crying hysterically, confessing to everything I've ever done my whole life. Well, I will second that by <laughs> by saying, I just want to go home. I want to <laughs> want to get out of here. Right. And yeah. she's kind of like, like, that's a good thing that you said. Like, she's like playing a game. Yeah. So 
the FBI, because they kind of don't have anything on Prati yet, they are going to start looking through the other students of Marymount High and just to see, like, does anyone else match this profile? So two days after leaving her interview with the FBI, Bernadette Prati went to her mother and gave her a letter. She told her mother that she wanted her to wait 30 minutes to read it, and then she left the house. Her mother set a timer for 30 minutes. Um, She was thinking that this was like a thank you letter. She's very wrong. In the letter, Prati confessed to killing Kirsten. I did it, she wrote to her mother. The FBI man was right. I did it. Horrified, her mother got her father and the two of them found Bernadette and drove her to the sheriff's station where she also confessed. Oh, okay. Wow. I am glad the parents took her to the police station and didn't try to cover it up with her. I mean, look, there are some cases where I'm sure, you know, you feel like you have to or like you want to, whatever, it's your child, but there's just... There's so much evidence. The evidence is all there in the garage. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can't deny that. So you have to do the right thing. You could say, hey, look, I'm bringing, I'm, we're bringing you there. We'll have a lawyer. That's it. Like, you know, and I'm, I'm sure they're distraught over the fact that their kid did this. Uh, Yeah. It's but terrifying. You have to do the right thing. You have to. Right. And it was December of 1984, just a few weeks shy of six months into the investigation, someone was finally arrested. In her trial, which took place in February of 1985, Prati's defense team explained what happened and why the girl did what she did. Prati had lured Kirsten out of her house under the pretense of something going on with the Bobbies that night. Even though she was legally not able to drive, she picked her up at her house and drove her one town over, where she parked on the street of Alex Arnold. The two girls sat talking in the Pinto. Now, we don't know what was said in that car exactly, but what we do know was that there was no Bobby event happening that day, and that must have been something that Kirsten clued into almost immediately when Bernadette drove her to the next town and parked on a side street. We also know Bernadette had a lot going on in her head, as revealed by herself later. She felt as if she weighed more than she should. She just, in general, felt like she wasn't living up to the beauty standards that she felt her friends around her were. Her family had a lot of money, But it was harder when it was spread amongst five siblings. So even though her family had a lot of money, she didn't have as much as her friends who had less siblings than her. So that made things really difficult. She didn't make the varsity cheer team. And she also did not make the yearbook club like all of her friends did. So I know this all seems like nothing. But we're adults and we can rationalize that. But a 15-year-old living in a town where nothing matters but appearances and keeping up with the Joneses could not. And I think we understand the rationalization of teenagers is so off, even by like, for example, what Nancy Kane did. She lied to the police during a 
a criminal investigation, a murder investigation, because she didn't want to get in trouble from her parents. The rationalization is not there. And that's what happened here. Obviously, there's a huge difference because she murdered somebody. So it's kind of like what you said with Kirsten being popular and this person is not popular, which would explain the yelling, like you said. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what Bernadette said to Kirsten, but after parking, the two got into an argument pretty quickly. Kirsten then ran from the car yelling at Bernadette that she was weird, and that was when she went to knock on Alex Arnold's door. And the reason why was because his house was the closest to where they were parked. Later in court, a tape of Bernadette speaking to police was played. In it, she described her mindset at the time. I had a lot of inferiority feelings and feelings about myself. I thought, you know, we were friends. I lost for cheerleader and I didn't get on the yearbook staff. My self-esteem was low. And she went on to say in the tape that she felt that Kirsten embodied everything she wasn't. Bernadette said that when Kirsten got into the car with Arnold, that that was when she panicked. She thought that when Kirsten left the car, it was okay because she would eventually get back in because she needed a ride home. But now that she was going to get a ride home from someone else, she panicked because she wouldn't have the time to explain to Kirsten why she brought her out. So she followed them. She was thinking that Kirsten would get back home and call everyone and tell her how weird she was for doing what she did. We still don't know why she did what she did. Like, we still don't know her intentions. But once Arnold with Kirsten got in the car and got back to her house, Bernadette pulled up behind them. And she watched in panic as Kirsten was walking towards her neighbor's house. She said she felt like she had to do something. So she grabbed a 12-inch knife that was in the back seat of the car. In court... Bernadette and her sister, who owned the car, testified to the fact that it was her sister's knife in the car, one that she used to cut fruit and vegetables while she was on her lunch break at work. Bernadette ran out of the Pinto, and remember, this is when Kirsten's yelling at her, go away, leave me alone, you're weird, and Arnold witnessed what he thought was a fist fight but really had been Bernadette stabbing Kirsten five times. See, now now we have some detail. It kind of makes sense because remember how I told you I thought it was a little too quick? The timing. But, the, but then again, we're talking about a 12-inch knife, and I find that a little – I think that's just the defense trying to justify why that knife was in the car, and maybe it is true, but to have a 12-inch knife in your car, I don't – I think in most states that's illegal off the bat. I think that the knife is really important because I don't know if it's her sister just trying to defend her sister and try to make this like better, but a 12 inch knife is not a knife that I would use to peel fruit or cut vegetables on my lunch break from work. Also, we need a little bit more clarification. I'll tell you why whether or not it's 12 inches from the tip of the blade to the handle, or if it's a 12-inch blade and then it's the It's not a 12-inch blade. It's a 12-inch knife. Okay. 
Well, but still, that's still, really it's, big. Yeah, it's still pretty big. And we need to know, did she know the knife was in the car? It's like, say it was in the car, but did she know it was there? And was she planning on using it? Like, there's a huge deal between premeditation and second degree murder. I mean, it's first and second degree murder here. Yeah, I, I mean, she had to have known it was there. Or something was said like, you know... you know, Because she, she went to grab it. She, she had to, to know grab it was so there. So either she didn't know it was there and her sister said, grab the knife in the back. Or she knew previously before getting well, into no, the car. Well, no, her sister wouldn't say grab the knife. She wasn't there. Oh, oh, that's right. I apologize. So she had to know that it was there, I guess, at a previous time. Right. Knew that she kept because it Because she there. knew to grab it. Right. Or did she bring it with her with the intention to murder Kirsten? And her sister's just backing her up. It's a very interesting question. Yeah. I mean, but it's a big question because it de- determines whether this is first or second degree murder here. Yeah. Um, so in a panic, not wanting Kirsten to make her life hell, like I'm sure she had seen her do to others, she jumped out of the car, stabbed her, and she got back in the car. Um, she threw the knife in the car and drove home as quickly as she could. And Arnold followed her home. Not home, but lost her right before she got to her house. Yeah. So when this story came out in court, the Prati family is crying. They're distraught over what happened and terrified what would happen next to Bernadette. But the rest of the courtroom was quiet and disgusted. Hearing that Kirsten Costas was murdered over nothing. It really, it really is nothing, you know. But like you've mentioned, I think before, to in the eyes of a teenager, it's everything. Right. Um, and really, the biggest thing here is now this is going to be a, a judge trial. Was this premeditated? And I, I don't know. I just feel like there's there is so much premeditation. Even the plan of calling Kirsten's house and telling her about this initiation dinner and calling two other people to kind of um, cover your tracks, that alone I feel is premeditation. Yeah, I don't even think it matters about the knife being in the backseat and her, and her awareness that it was there or not, right? I think yeah. the phone call really is what, you know, she's trying to set her up. Yeah. So I think that the phone call is actually more of an indication that this was planned than the knife. Right. Well, a judge did not agree. After three days of testimony, a judge found Bernadette Prati guilty of second degree murder, meaning he felt it was not premeditated. She was 16 at the time of sentencing. The max sentence was nine years. Prati served seven and was released in 1992 at the age of 23. She has since changed her name. She went to college to become a nurse. She keeps her life pretty private. She changed her name. She had at first lived in Oklahoma where she married, had a family, and now lives. she now lives in Oregon with her family. Since her release, she has made a formal apology to the Costas family. But I don't think you could ever apologize enough for that. No. And do you see this is a perfect example of it 
doesn't mean anything in high school. It, it, and all this stuff, it was for nothing. For nothing. For nothing because, you know what, even if this person or a bunch of people teased you, made fun of you, whatever the case may be, whatever it was for, it didn't matter because you wound up getting a good job, finding someone, and having children with them, and your life is is great. So right. it could have been... Insignificant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, 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 you know... Oh, you just ruined it, but it's okay that you were on the yearbook staff. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. You have everything that everyone dreams of: a home, uh, being married, having the American dream, and yet you went through the hazing and the teasing and and the bullying. But you know, it's just it's never worth it. It's never worth it to take it a step above. Yeah. Well, the Costas family never got to recover from this. Because what happened to them wasn't insignificant. Their daughter was murdered. The family left Orinda because the town was filled with memories of their beautiful daughter, Kirsten. They moved to Hawaii two years after the murder took place. And the family was very vocal and very upset about the short time that their daughter's killer had to spend in prison and the fact that she went on to live her life something that their daughter was unable to do. I have to say, I kind of agree with their family. (laughs) Yeah. You know, to not be able to have the same opportunity um, just because you want to get some revenge on someone. It's It's so sad. It's not right. It's sad. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, this was kind of the perfect storm here. And um, this became very popular in pop culture i guess you could say there was many like made for tv movies lifetime did two movies about this murder um first i think it was called the cheerleader murder then it was like a friend worth dying for tori spelling plays kirsten costas but i mean i think this whole crime it's very serious so it goes beyond a lifetime movie which, you know, sometimes a lot of murders do get made about, but I just wanted, you know, to bring this case to light because it's not one that's often covered by podcasts. And I think it's so important to kind of talk about um, the pressures that teenagers of our society feel and sometimes how dire that is kind of gets tied in and then they lose, you know, their whole lives sometimes. I mean, Bernadette here was able to go on and I mean she was released at 23 which is just kind of I feel is an injustice but it really is everything to them yeah and I think though though you know with this being said like that's 1984 um I think even now I think I mean I mean you're in schools I think you know more than me but I mean I think the kids now with social media and everything else that they go through that you know I feel like a lot of this could be heightened but it's good that like we've gotten to a place where um, kind of trying to stop the bullying and the like, the groups and stuff, and alienating other children and stuff. I feel like we've gotten better with that. Um, I think it's definitely more prevalent with like social media and the fact that you know it's so easy to be mean and aggressive behind your keyboard. And something that was different in 1984 was that I mean I feel like children did receive some type of reprieve like they could go home and kind of escape it a little bit whereas now with social media and the internet it's 
once bullying is taking place against your child, it can take place when whether they're at home or at school. So there kind of is no break from it, which makes it a little bit more intense. But children act out the same way, you know, there are, you know, children that commit suicide or children that go out and become bullies themselves. Or in this case, somebody murdered somebody. I mean, it really does speak a lot to the psychological effects of this time and people's lives and what they do and they can't rationalize the long term here and that's what I think is really the message in doubt is teenagers can't rationalize long term yeah they're they're vulnerable and they're impressionable so oof that was a that was, was a, a big one yeah it was a good one I liked it a lot you, and again high five Detective John. You know, what? it was weird that I kind of felt like they just kind of rolled up. I, I In my mind, I was picturing like, you know how like, you know, there's drive-by shootings. Like that's how I pictured this. Like they just got out with knives and just. A drive-by horrendous a, shooting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that's how I was picturing that. So it's okay. kind of funny how I keyed, uh, keyed into that. Good job. All right. Well, before we go, we just want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. Thank you for being patrons of the show. And we hope you're enjoying all of your extra episodes. So we just want to say thank you to Sabrina Lesader, Ivan Abrahantes, Mary King, Lindsay Jackson, Nikki Lovacaccini. Now this one's really difficult. So you have to help me if I say this wrong. Okay. This is Hildur Helga Avegzador. I know that that's wrong. So if you could give me a phonetic spelling, I will so do that again the next episode that we do. I mean, I think that was a good attempt. I tried. You tried. tried. I tried. We'll make right. You try to say that. I don't even want to do this on the podcast. This would be really bad. In I. In. In it. Okay. I don't know. We'll do a phonetic spelling, please, and then we'll do it again. John made it worse sound worse than I did. No, no. <laughs> yes, we are leaving that in. Don't keep we that have in. to. We have to. You better leave it in when you edit it. All right. Okay. Um, Samantha Cristani, Tony Johnson, and Brooke Watson. Thank you so much for becoming patrons, and again, hope you're enjoying everything. And to everyone else, see you in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.